Hello, I'm Andrew Vine, and this is Honestly Speaking, the podcast series that shares the insider secrets to recruiting external speakers to deliver successful events. These podcasts aim to raise the bar in terms of knowledge, understanding, and therefore confidence in engaging speakers and moderators to help us meet our business objectives. Hello and welcome back to another in the series of Honestly Speaking podcasts. If this is your first time, then you are very welcome. Now, when I set these up, I did promise you that in addition to recording some monologues from me and taking your good questions, that I would also bring in conversation interviews with interesting, insightful personalities who are part of this world of events and the world of speaking. So I'm very excited indeed to be bringing today's guest to you because he's someone who can help us take a good look at what it takes both to be a good speaker and also at the other side of the equation, what it takes for you guys who are the hiring speakers to make the best of that opportunity. So he's a highly successful and popular global speaker in his own right, an expert in the area of creativity and ideas generation and human innovation. Someone who, before COVID-19 at least, clocked up more flying hours than a Singapore Airlines long-haul captain. He's not only the quintessential global conference speaker, but he's also been heavily involved in the Association of Professional Speakers in Singapore, that's AEPSS, and was recently its president, and has really helped to coach and mentor dozens and dozens of aspiring speakers. So it's with that, extend a really warm welcome to Frederick Heron. How are you doing? I am actually doing very well. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Terrific. Now, here we both are in Singapore. There you are in your home studio, and I'm here in mine. I have to say, you've got a really great setup there. There's a little outbuilding from the main house. With three homeschooled kids, it's nice to have a different house to go to, I tell you that. I was going to say, I know you're a great dad. You spend a lot of time with your kids, but you need that space. It's probably out of bounds to them, right? They're not allowed in. (laughs) Yeah, but I do have to have it locked. Otherwise, they might still sneak in. Well, in fact, I didn't quite introduce you correctly because I know you like to use the title, the Creativity Explorer. And there's a little story that goes behind that. How did you come up with that? Because that does sum you up so well. Yeah, it it does. It's my brand moniker. So it is actually a a beautiful story because I didn't come up with it. My son came up with it when he was eight. He was asked to do a presentation in school. What does your parents do for a living? Which basically meant it was his first ever speech. So, you know, for me as a professional speaker, it was a big deal. And he was supposed to go there and say, my father is a creativity expert. Unfortunately, wow. he screwed it up and he said, my father is a creativity explorer. And my wife, who was there at the moment, she's a branding consultant. She called me up and said, Frederick, from now on, 20 years as a creativity expert, but from now on, you are the creativity explorer. That, uh, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. To explore means to venture into unknown territory in order to learn more about it. And that's exactly what I, wh- where my interests lie. I want to understand as much as possible about human creativity and, and explore the area of human creativity. Oh, what a brilliant mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, um, tell us a little bit about the early days. I mean, you're originally from Sweden before you moved to China and then eventually making Singapore your home. Tell us about the early days. Yeah, so I'm, I have a very unusual speaking background because I became a speaker straight out of university. I was 27 years old. I wrote my university thesis about the internet and marketing and then turned that into a book, which was the first ever book on internet and marketing in Sweden. And at 27, I was asked to start speaking about this new thing called the internet uh, mm. to companies because people had, people had no clue, right? So for, from, from 95 to 2000, I was an internet speaker. <laughs> and then in 2000, 
I decided to stop speaking about the internet because I felt that now we kind of figured internet out. There was nothing, basically we figured out what it was all about. Now we just had to do it, which is kind of funny because it was before Facebook and, and everything, right? 20 years later, we're still talking about digital transformation as one of the biggest trends on conferences. So it took a bit longer than I thought at the time. But I also realized that around 2000, I sold my company and I just decided to become a pure keynote speaker because that's the one thing I really, 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 really love to do, Mm. uh, to write and research and speak. And I said, I need, I, but I don't want to speak about the internet anymore. I wanted to speak about creativity because what I realized was that the internet, what has, what had fascinated me about the internet was that it was such a huge creativity catalyst. Suddenly you could take any industry and you could add the internet to it. And suddenly you came up with a lot of new ideas. Since then, I've been speaking, writing and researching about creativity, not only creativity and the internet, but creativity in all aspects. Perfect. Well, let's use some of that creativity today and have a think about what it takes really to be successful in this world of, of events together. For full disclosure, I know Frederick very well. Uh, the Insight Bureau is his principal speaking agency, and we're, we're indeed good friends. Um, but this is an ideal opportunity with all the experience that he has to help us think about the things that will help us raise the bar, raise the bar in terms of insights for those finding themselves in a position of having to put events together. So let's start with that in mind, the the DNA of a successful speaker. Now, I've got my own ideas on this, and I wrote a book called Honestly Speaking, of course. But let me just ask you the opening question, Frederick. You know, what do you think are the hallmarks of a successful speaker? Okay, I'm going to answer it this way, because as you said, you wrote a book about it, and I have read that book. I went back and I looked at it, and I think one of the hallmarks of a successful speaker is to be curious about the company that he or she is going to speak for, basically to understand what are they doing? What is the need? So I have your six factors that makes a great speaker. So I thought maybe I should use your six and give my take on it because that in in itself will exemplify how a great speaker takes the knowledge of the client and then infuses his or her own ideas on top of that to create this great fusion. So I think it becomes like a meta example of what makes a great speaker. How about that? We can definitely do that. And it's good affirmation that I actually got some of the points more or less right then. So let me (laughs) rattle off what those six are, and then we'll break it up into little bits then, shall we? Mm -hmm. So it's knowledge and content. It's your expertise. That's a clearly obvious thing. Uh, Another one is communication skills, another very obvious trait. Thirdly, less obvious perhaps, but is pitch, which is how you think and care about who you're actually talking to to make your presentation relevant. And then three other things, being authentic and having the passion for your topic, being unique because no one really wants to hear from someone who's ordinary or or abundantly available like anybody else. And then finally being memorable because at the end of the day, what's the point if people don't take good things away from it? So there are my six things, knowledge, communication, pitch, authentic, unique, and memorable. So shall we dissect those up a bit? What do you reckon? Of course, yes. So so knowledge and expertise, definitely. But I always say this to people who want to understand speaking and that actually to be a speaker, you just need to know more than your audience. So someone can come to me and say, I want to be a speaker on illustration. I'm just slightly better than an than a nine-year-old, I say, okay, fine. Then you can actually speak about illustration for eight-year-olds. The definition of an expert is that you are the one who knows most about this topic in the room. My background is perfect. I became a speaker on the internet because I had studied the internet for 10 weeks in 1994, 1995, 
Uh, I had 10 weeks more knowledge about internet and marketing than almost any other person in Sweden, which was only 10 weeks more, but that was huge because everyone else knew nothing. So I would go up on stage as the leading Swedish expert on internet and marketing, and I would tell them what I've learned. And then for 25 years, I just made sure that I know slightly more than the audience in the area I want to speak on. And it's, I say it kind of as a joke, but it's also true. Uh, it's like surfing a wave. When you yeah. surf a wave, you're slightly ahead of the wave. And that's always how I look at myself. I say, what, will, what does the world want to know more about in the next six to 12 months? I moved to China in 2005 because I had a feeling that the knowledge about creativity in Asia was going to explode in the next decade or so. And then I said, okay, I'm done with, done with Europe. I'm going to learn about creativity in Asia. And that was 2005. And many people laughed at me at that time but then of course it happened and and my message was perfect so you need to have a message that the audience goes yes i think this is something brand new for me at the same time they feel this is uh, i can connect with this message it's not too far ahead for me I think your analogy with the surfing just being ahead of the wave is is really good. And of course, you know, rule number one, the cardinal rule you mustn't break is, of course, put in front of an audience someone who knows less than yeah. the audience. So that is the number one. It's not that you know more than the, than the audience. Of course, you need to know more than the audience. It's that you know more about what the audience would like to know next. That's the key, right? So I would say one of the biggest skills of a speaker is to be able to see where the world is heading. The other second one, well, communication skills. We think about the communication skills in terms of verbal skills, but it's a lot more than that as well. I actually would like to say connection skills. I think a great speaker is a speaker who's able to connect with an audience. And of course, to do that, you need communication skills. But I would also say a lot of people who are great maybe at orators or communicators are not good at connecting. And, and if you ask people, who's the best speaker you've ever seen, it's not the one who was rhetorically perfect. It was the one that made you cry or laugh or mm. emotionally connect in some manner, either because it was a relatable story or whatever it was. So if you want to choose a speaker, also if you want to be a good speaker, practice your connection skills, which is communication used to create empathy. Absolutely. Yes, there's a whole number of things. It's very broad. It's things that kind of all interplay together. It moves ne- nicely into the next one, which is about pitch as well, it's, it's, which you've already mentioned. You know, it's it, communicating with people effectively is understanding who you're talking to and caring who you're talking to and then bringing the right connection to, to allow your knowledge to, to be transmitted because otherwise what's the point? I have a slightly different view also on the pitch. When I read that, you, to me... Pitch becomes when it's not about the speaker. You should select the speech and the message, not the speaker. And then you should select the speaker based on his or her ability to deliver that message. And when Mm -hmm. I go up on stage, I'm not thinking, how am I going to connect with this audience? I'm I'm thinking, how am I going to make the audience connect with my message? So the less you can make it about yourself... And the more you can make it about the, the audience, the better it is for a speaker. So how can you make yourself almost invisible? And that includes, for example, the introduction. Like when I go to an, a client and say, how would you like you to introduce me? I say to them, I don't want you to introduce me. I want you to introduce the topic I'm going to speak about and why it's important to the audience, why they should listen to this topic. And then you can say a little bit about me to build credibility, but that's only there to make them 
understand why they should listen to me talk about the topic, not why they should listen to me. And as I said, I think all these things are interrelated because authentic is all about some of the, all of the above as well, isn't it? It's about coming to your audience with a passion and a belief that allows you to make the connection and, and to, to transmit your thoughts. Yes. And to me, authentic comes down to, because there's a lot of talk within speakers to, to try to mimic other speakers or, or to try to find your own speaking style. I don't think definitely, of course, you shouldn't copy other speakers, but I also don't think you should try to find a speaking style because as soon as that is trying to be someone, even if that is a unique someone, it's still trying to be someone. So to me, authentic means that you're not trying, you're just yourself. You're not trying to play a role or, or go into a character. You're just yourself. And same thing again, if you ask people for their favorite speakers, they are not playing a role. They are just being themselves. Uh, to me, so to me, uh, when I am the creativity explorer, that is very authentic to me. My, I mean, my son came up with it, but I, it resonates so well with me that it just feels like it's who I am. And then why do I speak? Why do I speak? Because to, to explore actually means the, mean, the, etymology, the etymology of the word explore is actually to shout out. It means to shout out. And the way I look at that is that I go out to the world and interview creative people, you know, North Korea, Mongolia, Thailand, wherever I go. And then it's part of any explorer to go back and tell the king or whoever sent them out to tell them what they found on their explorations. And that is how I look at speaking. I'm only there to, to spread the message of what I learned on my expeditions. That's the reason right. I'm there. Moving on to unique as well, because I mean, as I mentioned, I think people are always looking for something a little different, not just valuable, but also something they haven't heard before. Mm. To me, unique and memorable are the ones that are most uh, closely connected. To me, unique and memorable is interesting. So my company is called The Interesting Organization. And the definition of interesting is unusual or exciting in a way that keeps your attention. That's the definition. And to me, that's the perfect example of a great speaker or a great speech. It's interesting as in it's unusual and or exciting in a way that keeps your attention. And the second part is the most important one, in a way that keeps your attention. Because you can go up and take, all your, take off all your clothes and that's shocking and you, you get your people's attention, but it doesn't stick. So it has, it, the interesting is long-term. It, it keeps your attention. You want to hear more. You want, you, you want to go back to it. You want to tell other people what you heard. That part is, is, is what makes it unique and memorable, whatever that might be. Yeah. And of course, from the organizer's point of view, you do want as much as possible to have some longevity. It's not just an opportunity today to make people feel good or to entertain them or to give them some short-term benefit. You want them to go away with some benefit they're going to take back to their companies, to their teams, and even to themselves in their own world. I mean, I, I did a speech today and I was introduced by the owner of the company who heard me 2016 in a speech in Cambridge. And he said, I still remember everything that happened in that speech. And that is a great example of how powerful a speech actually can be, that you, you can reflect mm -hmm. back to it and come back years later to, to someone and say, you know, I remember this speech. I need to bring that into my company. That, that's how it should work. And, and for the people who hire you, perhaps, for a client event, you know, that's really valuable that people remember that they were brought together and they got those insights and had a wonderful experience. 
So I think, looking at this, that it is a useful checklist. I mean, I think if you were recruiting an employee for your company, you you go in there with a number of must-have attributes, and then you have some nice-to-have attributes as well. And you, you want as much as possible to tick off all of those success factors as you go through, as you're interviewing to someone. So I think when you're choosing a speaker, this is actually a very good checklist to have in mind when you're both planning and executing your 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 event. Let's change the direction slightly. Let's jump over the hedge, if you like, because let's talk about what it takes to pull off the meetings from the meetings organizer point of view. I mean, you've got the perspective of having delivered thousands of speeches in like 70 different countries of the world, which is an amazing number. So you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of it all, right? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, what are the, so where does it all go potentially wrong? What do people really need to pay attention to to kind of minimize? Before we go that, I remember a client of mine a long time ago saying to me that conferences are an exercise in risk management. I thought, how true is that? Because there are so many things that can go wrong. You, it's almost amazing that they do. But when you're investing in speakers to get things so right, you've really got to be, you know, the stakes are quite high, aren't they? Yes, they are. I, I have huge respect for people who organize conferences. I organized one conference myself and I saw how many things that can go wrong. When you're behind the scenes, you see all the things that do not go well. If you attend a conference, you just see you see the performance, you see the show. You, when you're behind the scene as a speaker, it's like being in the kitchen in the restaurant instead of being outside where people are eating. Right. And it's total chaos and you're problem solving all the time. So yes, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that event managers do. Huge respect for that job. So run us through a few things, pointers that you think that are critical that help us make a success of a successful speaker. Okay. Well, first I would say that it's much more important to get speakers to understand that the job is to help the event organizers. What can the event organizers do? It's much more about briefing the speaker. Event organizers tend to take care of the speakers during the event when they have so much else to do. Take care of the speaker way before when you still have time mm. and brief the speaker much more than you do, especially mm brief about the other speakers. I mean, if you're a professional speaker, you ask who are all the other speakers, you Google the other speakers and look at their videos on YouTube so you know what kind of speaking style they have. But I know for a fact that most speakers don't do this. So if I organize, mm. if I was an event organizer, say, here are all the other speakers, here are the videos to their web page and their YouTube, because they, you have this already. Send it to all the other speakers. Send the slides to all the other speakers. These are the slides that all the other speakers are using. Because what happens then is that the speaker feel, oh, I'm part of an event and I know what's happening before and after. And that makes everyone behave more like an orchestra and less as a soloist because speakers tend to behave as soloists. Mm -hmm. For example, at big events, this happens all the time. You have speaker dinners the night before. But even if you mm -hmm. can't have a speaker dinner, have a virtual speaker, like have the briefing call with all the speakers at the same time, if possible, so that they can say hi to each other and give one sentence with their own, with, in their own words, what they are going to speak about and what they are passionate about. Anything to make the speaker feel we are part of a concert here. We're not, you're not here to perform by yourself. Makes a huge difference. That's such a good point. I haven't thought about that before, but the, the analogy with an orchestra, but that's really good. The occasions where things don't go quite so well, it's because there's been a misunderstanding or there has been a lack of communication or a lack of briefing. I know that you're the kind of person who turns up well before you're needed so that you can listen to the other speakers, get a feel for the audience. Like for example, um, uh, uh, if possible, for the speech I did today, I know they had one event the day before. I said, because it's a Zoom call, do you have the recording? And then I'm I go out walking anyway, so I just listen to the 
panel discussion that they had the day before, even if though I wasn't there attending it, I still know knew exactly what they have been seeing the day before. And now I can do one or two references in my speech, as we heard yesterday in the panel discussion. It seems to the audience like I al- almost I also attended it. it I didn't, but I just uh, listened to the to the panel discussion on one and a half speed. So it took me forty five minutes to listen to an hour's panel discussion, and now they feel like I'm part of it. So anything you can do to kind of encourage people to do that. And also, of course, invite them to stay longer, even after the speech. It, I think it's mm. because what happens, a lot of speakers, when they're done, when they're done, they leave. But what often happens is that one speaker will reference this earlier speaker. So if you sit there and still, still there and they reference you, and what do you think? Is Frederick still here? You go, yeah, I'm still here. That, that makes a huge Im- impact on the audience. Like, yeah. oh, he didn't just leave after his speech. And then you can, uh, yeah, just a small banter between the two speakers, and then you move on. Makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. If, if there's any criticism of, at all, I would say that many people hiring speakers think quite a lot about who they want to come to their event. They spend a lot of time selecting, but then they think perhaps the job is done. Mm. And it is, you know, obviously it's quite a big difference in levels of experience. But I think those who are successful and are are well experienced learn that there's a lot more things that you can do. You shouldn't be afraid to ask the speaker to do these and you find you might find pleasantly surprised that the speakers would like to do these things too and i also see from a bureau point of view is if the if the client isn't really asking the right questions or taking the right initiative it's for us to do that too if the speaker doesn't suggest it themselves then perhaps the bureau should do on their behalf if if one is involved so what other things what other practices a similar similar thing but not between different speakers but it's the same thing with whoever is the most senior leader of that meeting because very often when you're booked you're booked by a rather high maybe let the cmo let's say books books the event and you get the briefing call with the ceo cmo but not with the ceo maybe might not be on the briefing call so always if i if i'm at a conference i always go up to the ceo and say i i have been briefed in a briefing call earlier, and I've done my research. But what is it that you're not going to say in your speech to, to the audience? What is the hidden message that you're not going to say, but you want is like written between the lines that I, I can also put in between the lines in my speech? Because as an external speaker, we're actually there to enforce an internal message. A lot of speakers don't understand this. We, we are external enforcers of an internal message. And I would, if I was briefing, I would, I would go to the, the CEO and say, can you record on your phone a 30-second message to the, all the speakers that they need to know? It takes zero time to do that. And, mm. Or get, if not possible, during the conference itself, just introduce the speaker to the top leader and, and have that discussed because it, it's so, it makes a huge difference to align yourself with, mm. with what the top management wants to get out of the, the conference. Very good. You know, there's some great pointers in there. I mean, I think we could talk about this all day long because it's a massive topic, but I think you've picked off some of the really critical things that would make a material difference to those people who haven't perhaps got the same level of experience. Of course, we're, we're talking you know, about the fundamentals. These are the things from, you know, having the right type of speaker, having the right kind of relationship with the speaker to deliver an outstanding event. It is a slightly different story, of course, depending on what kind of event, what kind of audience you have. So in my world, I also work with economists and geostrategists. So when they're doing an economic briefing to an organization, the need to make that transition from uh, informing to engaging to inspiring to influencing isn't quite so important. You can get away with quite a lot. 
Although I don't want to talk at great length about COVID-19, how can we not talk about it in a way, I suppose? But this has completely transformed the meetings world. It's kind of stopped uh, most in-person events completely for the time being, and we've had to adapt very quickly to a, a virtual world. But I'd like to ask you, Frederick, where you think, you know, all those fundamental things that we've talked about, do they still apply or do we have to completely rewrite the rules? So virtual events are interesting because the recently what I've been doing a few of these virtual events, they actually they've used the metaphor of a TV studio or a talk show or a travel show. They've used much more of the language of TV than they've used the language of events. Yes, an online event is a virtual event uh, and it can be seen as a conference, but it can also be seen as TV and it actually works very well, is my experience. So I, I would encourage clients to be more creative in the way when they look at what can we do using basically using video to communicate the meeting instead of meeting in person and be more creative in, in than how that is being uh, executed. Because if you are, for example, in a if you have a panel discussion or you do a talk show, it's actually the same thing. It's two people sitting in a chair, but you do you can use the language of TV. It becomes actually much more interesting to look at a TV. A talk show is much more fun to look at and a panel discussion. And you can do the same for a speech as well. So even if this is temporary, more creativity in how we actually use the plus and minuses of distance, video, communication, or whatever we want to call this. Going forward, yeah. I think that when we move over to more hybrid solutions, I think it's it's always been important to not forget the people who are watching online. That was always true. Right? They will be true in the future as well. But then what happens after when we go back to in-person again, will it, will it have changed? Uh, I think we will have even more focus on the personal connection part of it. And I think that is great. I think a lot of events didn't focus enough on making sure that the people who were in the same room actually met the people they should have met. I think we'll see a lot of innovation making sure that you actually get to meet the right people while when we are actually meeting in person. And I think that might also mean shorter speeches in, in person. Virtual speeches tend to be shorter than in-person speeches. But when I started 20, 25 years ago, a keynote was one and a half hour. One year ago, it used to be one hour or maybe 40 minutes. And now on virtual, it's more like 20, 30 minutes. And I wouldn't be surprised in a few, when we go back, keynotes actually will be shorter, also in person. And that will put higher demands on speakers being able to you know, create more impact per second. Yeah. Again, this is a huge topic. I think it's been, you know, we have to understand that initially it was just a big shock. We couldn't do anything. Therefore, we relied on technology just, just to get by. And I think initially a lot of organizers of whatever it is, meetings, conferences, whatever, did their best. They jumped onto the virtual platforms, but tried to just replicate what would have been done in the real world online. And I think the key and the people that have learned the lessons here is that we have to do something different. Before COVID-19, when you, if you would ask me, you know, why hasn't uh, technology killed the conference business? I would say, well, it was never going to. It was only ever going to give us more tools to be cleverer. And now I'm scratching my head thinking, hmm, maybe finally, is this the thing that kind of kills the traditional conference setup? I don't think that we can quite go back to the way we were before, but I think we're going to be richer for the experience. Totally agree. The movies didn't kill radio, the TV didn't kill the movies, and I think that we get access to Zoom conferences or virtual meeting spaces or a clubhouse or whatever. It just, we're creating more avenues for people to meet and communicate between each other. That's a, that's amazing. That 
that's what makes us human. So we look back at 50 years from now, we're going to say, can you imagine when we only met in person, how, how limiting wasn't that? So the overall interesting trend is we will meet more than ever before. I think that's the, that's the in one way or another, yeah, the no, one way or another. Yes. And it's like, this is the time now really for fresh thinking of being bold and, and curious and creative and innovative. All the things you talk about, of course, we've got to be able to think that way when we're approaching the various types of events we, we pull together. Frederick, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you in conversation today with the creativity explorer himself, Frederick Heron. Thank you so much. You provided some real nuggets of insight that we can hopefully take back to our teams and to our businesses when we're pulling together future events. Thank you very much, Frederick, for sparing the time. Of course. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I love the whole honestly speaking uh, ambition that you have. Very good. Well, good. And so to everyone, thank you for joining today. And I look forward to welcoming you back in a couple of weeks time. This is Andrew Vine with Frederick Heron in Singapore, Honestly Speaking. Thanks for joining. To have access to the archive of podcasts in the series, please visit honestly-speaking.net. If you have questions or topics you think need addressing, please submit them to podcast at honestly-speaking.net. Or if what you really need is some one-on-one advice, then contact me via andrew at honestly-speaking.net.